Hello and welcome to this episode of DIT ON. I'm your host Jenna Brodie and today I'm joined by John Livesey who served in the Royal Navy for 26 years and left as a submarine captain. Hello John. Hello Jenna. Welcome to DIT ON. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So I'm just going to tell our listeners a little bit about you. So you joined in 93 as a warfare officer, general service and quickly volunteered for submarines. After your training, you joined your first submarine vanguard in workup uh, as a casing officer. And from there went on to serve on numerous other submarines before passing your perisher course and becoming the CEO of Victorious and Vigilant or Vanguard? Vigilance. Vigilant. Yeah. Um, on completion of that, you then taught perisher course, which I'm really interested to find out a bit more about. <laughs> um, you then had the opportunity to be the project and project officer in Faslane for the submarine move up to Faslane. And your final job was base XO of Faslane, which I'm sure also has some exciting dits. Mostly, Indeed. Mostly about parking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, the dreaded word. Yeah. And you left in 2019 and you actually also work for Barclays like me and you came into the bank through the after programme. So I'm really excited to hear your story of transition from the after programme to your full time role now. So welcome and thanks again. Yep, I say my pleasure. So to get started, I just want to talk a little bit about 1988. Um, you joined briefly as a junior seaman missileman. Correct. But, th but then left. Uh, what led you to join as as a missileman, but then decide quickly to leave? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one. So uh, there's a lot of uh, history of military or uniform in the family. My father was in the police for 30 years. My mother was in the police. Lots of uncles, cousins, etc., in the military. So there was always a an interest in joining the military. Um, and at 16, I'll, I have to admit, even then and today, I'm not the best scholar in the world. I'd had enough of school. So it was a case of um, look around and see which armed service seemed the best. Um, I went to the RAF careers office first, if I'm being perfectly honest, and I was six foot four at the time and was told you're too tall to fly uh, jets, so not for you, Popeye. So went next door to the uh, Navy careers office, looked through the brochures and decided there was a path for me there. Um, so in my ignorance, joined as a gunner. <laughs> um, and I think very quickly realised I perhaps undersold myself. All the joining process was pre GCSE results and we were the first year to do them and I actually did quite well in them as it turns out. So I was automatically qualified to be an officer through educational qualification when I joined HMS Rally as a gunner um, and without wishing to sound too big-headed I was kind of smashing through all the academic and the tests etc getting really high marks and uh, I won the Owen Cup at Rally for my entry which was the prize for the best um, new entry student um, so the, the omens were good <laughs> at that point and then went to HMS Cambridge and my divisional officer there um, really sort of honed in on the point that you really should be going for a commission and I was offered the opportunity for up a yardman scheme um, or to leave as an unhappy junior pre 17 and a half, which was the quickest way. <clears throat> and the idea then was to go and get some A-levels, um, go back to college and you know, reapply at a later date. So I never quite made it to the college. So <laughs> I, um, I did apply and I did have a place which would have been a year behind all my schoolmates and contemporaries. Um, I was still going to go, but I went back to um, a company called All Sports who have since gone bust. I'd worked with them as a Saturday lad before joining the Navy. 
and then um, I worked full-time over the summer and within six weeks I was offered an assistant manager's role and then six months after that I was offered a manager's role um, so I would uh, you know the thought of going back to college and doing A-levels and as I've said I'm not a scholar um, or staying earning money uh, the, the earning money stayed and, and won the battle quite frankly I mean uh, my first manager's job was in a shop in Chalton a tiny one um, and I wasn't even old enough. I was under 18 to take the takings to the bank, which you're supposed to do on a daily basis. But based on the fact I was pretty big and could look after myself, I was kind of overlooked that and carried on. Um, but um, yeah, so I did the um, the, sort of, the year as a junior rate, but left with a um, initially with the intention of doing the A-levels to become an officer with more qualifications. As it was, I just did management instead. Um, and actually, of the two, I think the management provided me a bit more of a life skill, shall we say? Yeah. Um, and that led to, I mean, I got to the point where I managed bigger and bigger stores with all sports, but the challenge of that was starting to dwindle. Um, and as it transpires, I mean, I applied uh, to become an officer, went through the process. Um, you'll be uh, acutely aware of it, and most of the listeners will as well, I suspect. Um, and got in. Um, I was There were 11 people on my AIB, the Admiralty Interview Board. I was the only one that passed, and I was the only non-graduate there. Um, oh, wow. You know, so it, it kind of, um, you know, hones in on it's not all about education or qualifications. It's more about how you perform on the day uh, or on the weekend, as it turns out. So um, I joined January 93. Six months later, the minimum educational requirement was upped to ha uh, requiring A-levels. So had I waited six months, I wouldn't have joined the Navy as an officer. It wouldn't wow. have been a route. So I, you know, unbeknowingly snuck in under the radar, but the rest, as they say, is history. So because I was a non-graduate, I could only join on an eight-year commission, a short career commission, as they were called in those days. But um, in those initial eight years, I obviously, you know, bluffed well enough to uh, convince the Navy they wanted to keep me a bit longer. So <laughs> Yeah, just a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> what, was the, what was the differences that you found in between the training at Dartmouth and Raleigh? Was there anything specific that stood out to you well um so the, any basic training of any of the forces um and i'm, I'm acutely close to this because my youngest son joined the raf five weeks ago and my eldest son joined the royal marines on monday so mm. um they're both going through the basic training but the the similarities are the um if you pardon the french the bullshit of basic training so it's the the ironing the polishing anything that's brass that could be polished and he's cleaning it all of that um is very similar and we know that the purpose of basic training is to de-civilianize the person. You know, it's to make you think and act and respond to orders. I wouldn't say without thinking, but so it's an instantaneous response rather than perhaps the, but why, uh, and challenging. So whichever service you join at whatever level, basic training is going to give you those skills, shall we call them. It's the ability to, you know, instantly um, respond to orders because that's how the military operates, of course. Um, in terms of Dartmouth compared to Raleigh, <clears throat> of course, there's a lot more around leadership rather than core skills. So Raleigh is very much about learn what the Navy is. Um, at Dartmouth, you would expect people joining to have done a little bit more pre-reading and understand what the Navy is, but perhaps not have honed their leadership skills more. So um, the I saw an awful, I mean, of course, the, the amount of time you spend in training is an awful lot longer. So uh, whatever it was, eight weeks of basic training at Raleigh, followed by about 12 weeks of gunner training, missileman training. Um, Dartmouth was a two-year process. 
Um, and it was two years because I was a non-graduate. So I had to do the two terms of academic studies at Dartmouth, which took me from joining in January 93 to finishing those in December 95. So it's a longer, more drawn out, more leadership focused training at Dartmouth than Raleigh. But there are definite similarities. Mm. Yeah, I think so as well. And then at what point in your time at Dartmouth did you volunteer for submarines? So uh, it was actually when I'd gone to Officer the Watch course. So okay. finished all the, uh, the the standard warfare officer route. Uh, you join as, <clears throat> as a non-graduate. Um, you, you do your initial training. Um, you do your fleet time, as it was called then. It's called something else now. I forget what. Um, so that was four months on uh, HMS Leeds Castle and then four months on HMS Coventry. One was fishery protection in the North Sea. One was deployed into the Mediterranean, um, which was really good, actually, because we all like a run ashore, don't we? Um, so, uh, you know, I went to places I've never been since, actually, on the, even in that, that four-month period. Um, but at the end of that, do the fleet board, pass that, do the academic terms, and then it's Officer of the Watch training at what used to be HMS Dryad, of course, another one of the many bases that no longer exists. Um, and during that um, period there where you're doing all your basic Officer of the Watch training, um, the submarine appointer comes and pays a visit and uh, basically says any volunteers now i have to say <laughs> um i think for my course and um you know let's say there were 15 people on it um there was a requirement for one person to volunteer i think or there was a requirement for two people i volunteered purely out of curiosity if i'm being yeah. perfectly honest it sounded a bit more intriguing and i'll not lie the thought of submarine pay had a small influence because yeah. you know, they get paid more money and you know when you're a young poor midshipman that, that has a big influence um the course after me they needed three volunteers and nobody did so oh, there were wow. effectively three pressed men because it was only men then there were no women in submarines um that went and joined that said i i would say of probably of all those who were forced into the submarines because of numbers, because of manning requirements, who were then told that you can leave after X amount of time, over my 20 years or so in and around submarines, I would say 95% stay. Because as much as you don't like the idea potentially at the time, and it's all a bit um, scary and not what you were after, once you are literally and metaphorically immersed in that lifestyle, it become you become part of such a close-knit team you don't want to leave and there is of course a financial penalty as well if you leave but i don't think that's the key driver i think it is that once you are a submariner you are a submariner and it, it is there is a pride that goes with wearing those dolphins mm. yeah I bet, I bet there is and i and i think i've heard similar from other submariners that i spoke to and my dad was a submariner for 22 years and he said after spending time on submarines there's no way he could have gone back yeah. to general service because it just felt it feels different yeah yeah like a family i have to say you know in latter years post command i went and did some augmenting exercises um out in singapore there's uh, an organization called the fpda the five powers defense arrangements and it's uh, basically it's malaysia singapore new zealand australia and the uk it's quite a long in fact it's the 50th anniversary uh, this year uh, if i remember rightly um but all the time I was out there helping run these exercises, I went there as a, a, sort of a submariner specialist mm. to teach them how to do um, anti-submarine warfare, etc. Um, but it was all on ships. 
and I've thoroughly enjoyed every minute on those ships. Yeah. Um, as much as I enjoy, you know, the, the time in command we'll get to, I'm sure, because that was just the best job ever. But, um, you know, the, the, the option to go on them surface ships of various different nations um, was really rewarding. I loved it. I just love being at sea. Yeah. No, I agree. I loved being at sea as well. Day alongside is a day wasted. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so you joined your first submarine, Vanguard, in yep. workup as the CASO, the casing officer. What Correct. was your first kind of days, weeks like on board? <laughs> so that, that was probably the biggest baptism of fire you could have because, <laughs> uh, you know, people will know the first day of operational sea training or even a bust as this was, um, it's fire, flood and famine. And um, yeah, on submarines, the, there's, um, the training is always broken up into phases. And the first one is always safety training. Um, and safety training in submarines is collisions, hydraulic bursts, fires, flood, famine, you know, you know, plague of locusts, you name it, it's all there. Um, so I joined, I didn't even have time with the crew before the Fosties joined. I joined with the Fosties on my first day. Um, and even on a Vanguard class submarine, my first bed was a bunk bed on the fore uh, deck of the missile compartment, balanced on rows and rows of tins of baked beans. <laughs> And living out of a bag so there was no luxury to being um, an officer in the submarine because effectively until you're qualified you're almost nothing mm. um, it doesn't matter whether you're a lieutenant commander or a brand new able rate you know if you are not a badge wearing submariner then you're a liability almost yeah <laughs> so the um the first few days uh, they were really intense but actually um in terms of learning your trade it couldn't have been better because you're seeing in a controlled environment every possible thing that could happen on a submarine and how it goes wrong and more importantly how you recover from it so to be um surrounded by that from literally minute one of arriving on board was hugely useful um and then when it came to um doing the patrol after we'd finished the training period um, when it comes to what happens in this situation, if you've seen it rather than just seen the th or read the theory, it makes so much more sense. Uh, I don't know about yourself, but I mean, I, as I've already alluded to, I'm not a scholar. I hate reading books. I, I learn so much more in a tactile, hands-on, doing it, seeing it way. Um, so, and, and that's absolutely required in the submarine. You know, the, anyone who wants to get their dolphins when I did it, it was part three training. Nowadays, it's called um, SMQ or BSQ or something. Like that. But yeah, um, I think but, it's BSQ. Yeah. yeah. Um, you have to know every single system on board the submarine. As an officer, you've got to understand the management and the, um, you know, being the officer of the day on a, a nuclear submarine with nuclear weapons on board is a whole bigger kettle of fish than being, even I would say, officer of the day on a carrier. Yeah. Um, which would be at a senior level because you have that um, huge additional burden of uh, you know, every submarine in the Royal Navy has got a nuclear reactor now um, and there's um, safety elements to that that you have to understand you've got to know how to react but not every submarine has got nuclear weapons and they have understandably um, a whole other package of rules and regulations that enshrine the safe operation and custody of those as well. So that's going from nothing to um, being qualified with your dolphins on a Vanguard class submarine. It's quite a significant undertaking actually. Um, and uh, like I say, the, do, if you try to do it all theoretically, I would struggle. I would not be able to do that. But joining, going straight to sea, doing lots of crunchy stuff, doing all the training, then doing a patrol. Fortunately, at the end of that, I was able to prove that I knew enough to get my dolphins. And that's a moment you'll never forget. 
yeah. when you receive your dolphins. Uh, some people won't be aware, but the, the traditional way of receiving your dolphins when you qualify as a submariner is to have them in a glass with a rather generous tot of rum. And <laughs> uh, it. it's, it's not anything that would get poured in a pub, I can assure you. And you then have to down said liquid in one go and then catch the dolphins in your teeth. Um, and when you're six foot five in a submarine mess trying to do that and having to crick your neck over in order to achieve it in front of an admiral, it, it can be a bit embarrassing. But um, but yeah, it, it was uh, the, the, the first submarine, the first patrol, that qualifying as a submariner, hugely memorable. And the first time that you wear your number one uniform with your dolphins on, you'll never forget as well. It's yeah. really a proud moment. Uh, getting them, being handed them is one thing wearing them for the first time as well it was a wedding as it turns out it was a fellow pusser actually a chap called Dave Priest um, oh, wedding down in Cornwall you may know Dave um, that was the first occasion where I wore my dolphins uh, at his wedding so. oh that's amazing and then just going back to a couple of things that you said so the BSQ that you have to do with Samaritans you know as you said you have to know everything about the boat in case something happens we don't i mean we have similar joining routines that we have to do on ships but nowhere near yeah. as in depth as you have to do on a submarine so i can completely understand how rewarding that would be i mean just having some task books signed off was more <laughs> like a weight lifted off your shoulder on in general service as opposed yeah. to a feeling of pride for me anyway I don't know about everybody else but what was it like the first time you dived on a submarine do you know it was a bit of an anti-climax really um yeah I, I was expecting it to be a bit world war ii and lots of big angles and all the rest of it you know you, you live off the black and white films you see don't you about yeah. submarines but um because it was a vanguard class submarine and they are so big I mean bear in mind these things are 150 meters long so they're, you know, sort of 30 metres longer than the pit, football pitch at Wembley. Um, and they're four storeys high. They're 16,000 tonnes. They're massive mm. leviathans. And um, it, it, the way you dive a submarine um, is it's a fine balancing act of having all the right weight in the right place, etc. But you'll, um, you, you open main vents, you pull the plugs out the top of these ballast tanks effectively, and you'll do the back first. Uh, because you want the um, propulsor or the propeller, whatever it is on a submarine you're on, to be dug in more before you start trying to drive yourselves underwater. So you, you start getting a slight upwards angle uh, on the submarine, and then you'll open the, um, the forward um, main vents and start bringing um, the submarine level again, but there's just more water in the ballast tanks around the submarine. And then you have to drive yourself uh, underwater. Now, it sounds like that should be quite simple, but everywhere where there could be air trapped there is air um so the the process you'd go through is you you put a small angle on to start with just to drive yourself underwater and break what they call surface capture um and then the next thing you do is put a bit more of an angle on and go down to a depth and then come back up and the the, the act of that is actually to drive all the air out of where it shouldn't be hmm. so you've only got water in all the areas that water can get into um, and then it's <laughs> and then it's a fine act of uh, balancing out of getting all the water in the right place because you'll find the trim's all wrong. And uh, as the XO, as a second command, that's your bag to make sure the trim is right and you put a diving trim on and you make sure you, you've just stored for 100 days. So you've got a lot more weight in some place. So you've got to move water somewhere else and so on and so forth. I mean, you, your trim is never right, let's face it. So <laughs> the, the, the trim is only ever right for one moment in time. Um, no matter where you are, what depth, whatever, because as soon as it's perfect, someone else moves. 
or mm. you're pumping water forwards or you've pumped out bilges. So it all changes. The dynamic always changes. But back to the first dive, I mean, the biggest angle I think we achieved was like six degrees um, of a bow down and then six degrees back up again. So I remember standing there uh, in the control room at the back, right out of the way, because I didn't have a clue what was going on uh, and thinking, oh, is that it? <laughs> are we underwater you know, it, yeah. it didn't feel anywhere near as significant as I thought it would do yeah did you and how long did you spend at sea the first time you dived um the first well so the the, the first time I dived was in the training period mm. so that would have been um a, a few days before we surface and then you get the safety team off and then you get the operations team on and what have you so um the, the there was in the training period the longest you would stay dived is probably four or five days yeah. um in between phases and some of the drills you do will require you to surface anyway so um one of the safety drills you'll do is simulating a flood which is the worst nightmare for a submariner it's worse than a fire or a hydraulic burst because you can wear, you can put a mask on, you can, you know, you can put a fire out, whatever. A flood is catastrophic. Mm. Um, but the the immediate response to a flood alarm is to blow all everything, put air, air everywhere you'll go, put as many revs on as you can and drive yourself up to the surface. Um, and that's one of the things that would cause you to end up on the surface again. Uh, and then, you know, so um, the if you, you know, I think what you're searching for really is what's the is sort of the longest amount of time that I spent underwater. Once the training period's done and you go on patrol, effectively, any deterrent patrol you go on, you dive as soon as you possibly can so that you cannot be detected mm -hmm. and you surface as late as you possibly can, i.e. the day before or the day you get in so that you cannot be detected. Um, and I think my first patrols brackets, you know, five or six of them were somewhere between 60 and 80 days each. Yeah. Wow. So when I'm just thinking of when I when I used to go to sea, I mean, depending on where we were and how hot or cold it was, there could have been days that I wouldn't have gone on the upper deck. But knowing that I had the option yeah. to go and have some fresh air and see the horizon and even if I could only see sea and sky, knowing yeah. that it was there. Did you feel that, you know, you maybe wanted that or was that ever an issue where you thought I can't go out? I can't go anywhere. No, and I, I, you, you use the, the key phrase there was, you know, you had an option. We didn't have an option, so it yeah. doesn't play on your mind. I think if it was a case of, um, you know, perhaps we could surface or at least go to periscope depth and we can look out of the, you know, the periscope and what have you, um, it might start playing on your mind. But on a deterrent patrol, your job is basically to not be detected so yeah. that you can if called upon, um, you know, uh, release deterrent um, nuclear missiles. So you you don't unzip the proverbial fly at all. You stay deep, you stay hidden, you, you don't expose yourself whatsoever. Um, so it's not an option. It mm. doesn't play on your mind that if only we could, because you can't, um, simple as that. Uh, we'll perhaps get onto this a little bit later, but you know, the um, there are certain things that can happen on a deterrent patrol where in under any other circumstance, you would probably surface and get people off and what have you but you can't you know you have to have that mindset it comes back to that first principle of warfare of selection and maintenance of the aim if you are on if you are providing the uk's nuclear strategic deterrent that's your job nothing else trumps it yeah. and you do not get counter detected by anybody um until you are relieved by the person that's coming to relieve you on patrol and even then it's only at the last possible minute will you, you know, kind of you know expose yourself and risk being counter-detected so it's, it's an absolute mindset that you have to have 
of we are here to do this at all costs and therefore we will not generate any situation that risks that. Yeah, no, I was going to say it seems like a very focused mindset, which is which is yeah. fascinating. OK, <laughs> so you finished your time on uh, Vanguard, yep. you're qualified, you finished being in the Queso and then you joined Victorious as the SCO. Correct, yeah. And how, how did that job differ from being a Queso? Well, you've, um, you're trusted a bit more because you're that next level up um, and you, you have far more of an understanding as to how things should happen. Um, bearing in mind, this was the same class of submarine as well. If you go to a different class of submarine it's, and it's your first time on that, um, you're effectively a newbie again. You understand being a submariner, you've got your dolphins, but it doesn't relieve you of the requirement to then re-qualify on that class of submarine. And even though it was the same class of submarine, I still had to re-qualify and prove I was competent as an officer of the day in dived watch keeping, etc. Um, but the, <laughs> the communications um, on a deterrent submarine are pivotal. They're, they're, they're hugely important. I don't want to go into the details why. Um, but having um, access to all the important news when it comes in as the communications officer, you hold all the crypto that you can then decode all these messages. Now, the, the one thing you, you probably... Uh, in fact, in any ship, effectively, any, any naval unit, anything that's marked you know, strictly for the commanding officer's eyes only is probably seen by three or four people before it gets to him mm. because it has to be processed. It has to be de you know, decrypted. It has to be printed off. Uh, you know, it has to be taken on a board to the captain. And depending on what the classifications are of the signals, it will depend on whether it's the radio supervisor, the senior communicator on the submarines known as the RS. Mm -hmm. um, I think they probably are in other places. But um, uh, but if it's a certain type of message, then it would be taken by the community, the SCO, the, the communications officer. Um, so, yeah, it, that side of life made it a bit more interesting. And, and to be honest, it's only as you get further up in the bed that you actually start to appreciate why you're there. Mm. In the junior roles, you just get a submariner and you go and do your job and that's fine. And, and you understand you're on a deterrent submarine. But um, I would say it was only after I've, I did Perisher and I went to be the XO of a deterrent submarine that you get access to all these other uh, interesting red books that are top secret and code words up the yin yang that you actually then appreciate why you're doing what you're doing and what mm. it is you're doing. Up until then, you thought you knew, <laughs> but you didn't really. It's only when you get into the uh, the interesting stuff um, that it really puts everything in perspective. Yeah. And at what point do you think, I mean, did you always aspire to command a nuclear submarine or it did, did I'll be it quite honest, happen? Jenna. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was still on an eight-year commission when I joined submarines. So uh, my first submarine, I, I qualified and thought, actually, this is all right. Uh, you know, I quite like it. It was when I went to my second submarine, to Victorious, that I had um, a couple of really good commanding officers there who trusted me with uh, my own dived watch at a relatively junior stage. Normally, it's the level above where you get to your own dived watch, but... Um, depending on how quiet it, it, the uh, the tactical situation is, you can then, uh, as a captain, it's your prerogative to um, give a watch to a more senior or experienced operator who's at that second tier rather than the third tier. Um, so being given that and being trusted with it and having the encouragement from the captains that I had then 
it was then that the seed was sown, I think, to think, well, maybe I could go on and do this. You know, I, I'm enjoying this and there's life beyond this level. But in order to do that, I need to start um, being selected for a longer term commission because there's no way I can get to perish on what I'm on now. So um, it was a kind of, you know, success breeds success in that respect. The, the second job went well, got all the right recommends. Um, and off the back of that, got a medium career commission which bought me 16 years or whatever it was. I think it was 16 years at the time, um, which gave me the legs to get to Perisher. Um, and it was in the next job when I was a, a PO or watch leader that I was offered a full career commission, which definitely gave me the legs. And, and that was the job that you were going to be selected from for Perisher anyway. Mm -hmm. So it, it came, it started off as a um, curiosity interest in the first job, qualified. Yeah, this is all right. Second job, in, you know, interest peaked because I was doing quite well at it and I enjoyed it. Um, and then third job uh, as a watch leader, as a PWO, that's when I really started enjoying because I went to a different class of submarine. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I guess um, if you can call it lucky, uh, I went to my first uh, SSN, HMS Splendid in 2000. And we all know what happened shortly thereafter, um, you know, with uh, what happened in New York. So um, the S-boats at the time, I was very fortunate to be on the running ones. Um, so I was now a watch leader um, on a crunchy submarine running around the oceans. So uh, having done been on two um, deterrent submarines where you go nowhere, quite literally nowhere, <laughs> there's no runs ashore anywhere. Um, I then joined Splendid where we went to south africa singapore diego garcia the gulf obviously because mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot going on in the gulf at the time um i've been to brazil uh been to rio been to the falklands uh you know you name it so in s boats i was really really lucky um it's splendid um we were firing tomahawk missiles as part of um the conflict in 2003 um as the clock ticked over onto my son's third birthday we were launching Tomahawk missiles um, into wow. um, Iraq. So that was quite a memorable moment. And, yeah. and I guess you kind of, you know, my first child was born, Jack, in 2000. Um, and whilst all the running around the oceans was superb, um, I missed an awful lot of the childhood of my first two. The first place I ever saw my youngest son walk was at Singapore Airport when my wife flew out with him as a one-year-old and Jack as a three-year-old on yet another jolly grab, um, where it was a case of, you know, flying out to see us somewhere. And I went to the airport and um, Harry got out of his pushchair and did his orangutan waddle towards me. But it was, ah, you can walk. <laughs> well done, son. Yeah. So, and again, things like that really stick in your mind. You know, it's um, it, it was a hugely busy period. We, we did lots of good crunchy stuff um, in S-boats. Um, the, the second one I was in, HMS Spartan, we had um, the dry deck hangar on the back of it, which was a brand new capability, which um, you use for um, the SBS. Uh, they have their own swimmer delivery vehicle that's stowed in the back of it, and they go off and do their Charlie Cheese wire stuff and what have you. So setting that to work was a significant uh, capability um, enhancement for the, the submarine service. And the, the next iteration of that on the Astute class um, is a different hangar, mm. um, you know, with a different name. But th that was proving the concept, if you like. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was a busy time, the S-boat time, sort of 2000 to 2005. But being busy was really good at providing huge amounts of experience to then go on Perisher. Mm. So did you get selected for Perisher from 
the S boat Spartan. from Spartan. Yeah, yeah. So, the yes. se- so the second S boat spawn, uh, and actually the, the doing that. Um, the, the dry deck hangar work with Spartan and the operations uh, around the the globe, etc., um, really helped. I think um, I, again, I had a really good uh, commanding officer. I've been very lucky. I'll be quite honest. I mean, you, you hear horror stories of sub- submarine COs uh, of the past. It's perhaps a, you know half a generation before my time, where there's some some real dare I say it, tyrants by reputation. I can't qualify that because I never served with them. Um, but all the commanding officers I had were superb. They, they, they really were very good. Um, and of course, you you cherry pick the good bits from all of them. Yeah. Um, and you you kind you hope that you can use those bits, um, you know, to your own advantage when you get to perish. Um, so yes, it was from HMS Spartan. Um, Paul Holton was the captain at the time. He's now an admiral. He's done all right for himself. Um, and uh, it, yeah, from there, fortunately, it was a bit funny actually because the teacher of my perisher had also been my commanding officer in HMS Splendid, oh. and that that um, provided a slightly unusual dynamic in that I got on course with someone I knew hugely well because we spent a lot of time together he was the captain when we were firing tomahawks into baghdad and all the rest of it um and it was really awkward um to know someone so well and then for them to take on a completely different persona Mm. in teacher uh, and you're just a student again um and we'll perhaps cover some of that teacher stuff uh, a bit later on if we don't run out of time but yeah it was it was an interesting course (laughs) fortunately i passed it (laughs) Of course. And ca- ca- what can you tell us about it? I mean, I've heard so many horror stories about what it's like to be on Perisher. What can you tell yeah. us? Well, I mean, it's sadly named. So Perisher is a one shot only course. Um, and as much as it's a little bit about you've got to have the tactical acumen and know how to move submarines around and do all the, the weapon firing um, stuff. Fundamentally, it's a leadership course. So have you got the mindset to command a submarine in a war scenario? effectively um and because it is a one-shot only course and, and you know historically uh, and it's over 100 years old now perisher the success rate has been pretty consistent over all those years so it's somewhere around 60 65 percent pass um which may sound a lot but actually that's a lot of fails and mm. for those people that is the end of their submarine submarine career sorry i should say um it doesn't mean it's the end of their naval career and it doesn't mean you're a bad person. So failing perisher is it just means you don't have the mindset or the leadership traits that are needed in a submarine, which are different to other command roles. Um, I mean, I know some people who've gone on to uh, drive surface ships and get promoted and reach Admiral anyway, having failed perisher. So it's by no means a mark on your ability to be a decent human being or a naval officer it's just whether it's going to work with a submarine crew or not will that crew trust you in command or as an exo yes or no it's very simple Um, and when i was teacher i i used a very simple metric of would i trust my son at sea with this person if they were in command in a tricky situation and if the answer was no they didn't pass Mm. And that's fair there was enough. a bit more to it than that you know there, there mm. were some you know yeah. metric but but that was fundamentally what i would say to myself is you know would i trust someone i cared with this person and if it was yes fine and yeah. if it was no no they didn't pass no. uh, well, but that makes sense. Yeah. sorry sorry Jenny. no i was gonna say that makes sense because they are in command of a lot of people's sons yeah. lives so yeah. 
Yeah, and the training itself, I mean, you, you feel under huge pressure the whole time because you don't know you've passed literally until the last minute. Um, the, the, the last thing that the submarine does at the end of five weeks in trainers and four weeks at sea under the most intense scrutiny and pressure that you personally feel, as it turns out, it's not that bad because I've seen it from the other side of the fence. Um, it's all self-induced. Mm. You know, the, 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 the massive pressure is totally self-induced and you're actually not under that much pressure from other people. It just feels like you are. Um, so you, uh, you, there's two very distinct phases to the course. So there's an awful lot of time spent in simulators um, doing all sorts of um, periscope um, jiggery-pokery and very fast maths and proving you can keep a submarine safe, etc. Then you go into scenario war games where you have to, rather than executing the plan, you have to um, you know, deliver the plan, you have to lead the plan. Uh, and it's very different. Um, but of course, it's very safe. You know, in a trainer, if you get it horribly wrong and you run aground or you drive into the ship, well, it's just a game. It's a computer game. It doesn't matter. No one dies. Um, the sea phase is a different kettle of fish. But there's, there's two groups of people. There are those that do very well in the simulator but can struggle at sea. And conversely, you get some that aren't. So they don't like the lack of realism in the simulator, but they, they thrive at the at-sea environment. Um, and what you'll see... Uh, you've, the acid test for anyone really is how, do, how are the crew reacting to these people? Mm. Um, are they trying to help them or do they think this guy's a dick and they want them to fail? And it's very obvious. It's, mm. it's very obvious how the crew are reacting. And that does influence decisions that you make further down the line. But uh, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a tough course. It's made tougher by the self-induced pressure that's put on yourself but the feeling of joy when you pass it is phenomenal. Mm. You are so physically exhausted at the time um, that you perhaps don't react the way you would if you'd just been told you passed the following morning after you'd got back alongside. Um, but the, the feeling of elation is just phenomenal um, yeah. because you realise that you now have the potential, not that it's not a given, that you could then go on and command a submarine. Because the first job after passing Perisher is to be the EXO, the second in command. And not everyone who does that is recommended or selected for command subsequently. Mm. So still more hoops to jump through to command. Indeed. Yeah. So you passed Perisher then and you were EXO of Vanguard. Yes. Yes. What was that like? Because you'd been on S-boats for a few years and now you yeah. were back on V-boats. What was that like? Dare I say it? It was like coming home. Oh. Um, it, it, there was a famili you know, familiarity um with how it all works the noises the sounds the smells it it was all felt um comfortable yeah um, and again i was blessed with a cracking captain uh, a guy called irves Lindsay, um who i you know, kept in touch with for a long time um but yeah it, it was great and, and like i say i kind of alluded to it before the the deterrence bit when you become um the second in command there's there's basically there's anything to do with deterrence um there's two groups of two people and you need one of each to do anything significant the, the, don't worry about the details of it but you've got the two uh, weapons engineer types so you've got the wio the weapons engineer officer and the smo who is the strategic missile officer and then you've got the captain and the exo um so in order to do anything of significance with the weapon system you need one of each to make things happen um, and that cohort of four people are probably the only four people on board that fully understand what it is you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, and they'll go to different briefings um, 
in various places and get the full picture as to what the tactical situation is when you're likely to go on patrol um and it, you understand the the risk balance of what you can do on patrol and what you can't do where you can go how you can act etc um so yeah to, to have someone who was i think that was his first ever deterrent submarine as a captain and me who had a lot of deterrent submarine experience we were a really good balance between the two of us mm. we, we got on very well and i drew again from his significant um command experience if you like he he was um far more experienced than i was and he benefited from my deterrent ssbn deterrent experience as well so we, we worked really well together um and that in itself was a really good stepping stone to going to command myself because if you get the combination of the captain and the xo wrong it can be quite damaging um well, obviously, there's only going to be one loser, <laughs> um, and that's going to be the XO. Um, and I've seen that happen, but uh, I was fortunate again. Um, I had some uh, a good captain, uh, so I went uh, on, did that XO's job, and from that was then recommended to go to FOST, the the sea training organisation, as one of the command riders. And that th there are some jobs you'll know this that if you go to certain jobs, you're probably doing all right. And if you don't cock that job up, then you're likely to move on to the next level. Um, so by virtue of being um, selected to go to that job post uh, XO time, the indications were good <laughs> that mm. you know things were going again in the right direction. Um, so uh, yeah, the, from that sea training job, I was then selected from that to command, which was um, yeah a, a fantastic day. Mm. And that was to command victorious. It was, yes. Yeah. yeah. So started the commanding officer's um, DESIG course in January 11 um, and then took command of Victorious in May. Uh, but the CEO DESIG course is not, in fact, there's very few submariners on it. It's anyone who's taking command. And mm -hmm. that, that was really good. It was you know, learning again and being um, surrounded by general service counterparts who have a different way of thinking, but it's not a lesser way, it's just a different way. So um, there was lots of cross-pollination of, you know, techniques and what we're going to do and how we do things. And you leave that course um, wiser than when you started it, of course. You know, the, you, you're no better at being a submariner, but you're better at understanding command from different perspectives. Um, so definitely took something away from that. But yeah, the, the, um, the dawning of responsibility when you send that first signal saying, I am now the captain of mm -hmm. this vessel that has nuclear missiles on it and a nuclear reactor and a crew of 190 people etc um it's just uh, phenomenal uh it's uh, nothing i've done before or since has had the same professional gratification as being in command of a submarine the fact it was a deterrent submarine is almost irrelevant it's just being in command of a team of people with something that's you know a billion pound asset it's just brilliant it's the best mm. thing ever <laughs> i can imagine and and you know, were you nervous or was it more relation than anything else? Not so much nervous because I was very comfortable with the platform. I knew those class of submarines inside out. Had it been a class of submarine that I had not spent any time on, there would have been a few more. I don't know if nerves is right, because by the time you've done Perisher and you've been in EXO and you've done the speed training role and, 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 um, you're capable of doing the command role. Simple as that. Um, and you know you can learn the nuances of a platform as you go along, but uh, the, the command role is very much a leadership role. Uh, it's not so much um, about being a tactical genius. 
um, as it was that the roles that I'd done uh, being in the training role, you're kind of in the, the weeds of that tactical enhancement anyway. So I was, I could perhaps bring a bit more to the party in that respect, but I'd had quite a narrow career up to that point. There are some people that go on command who've done a broadening job. They've gone and done a joint job somewhere first. Mm-hmm. I was very much submarine ops, submarine ops, submarine ops command, boom. Um, and that's great to be a submarine captain. Um, in hindsight, it's probably not best to go and do something post-command, but you know, it doesn't matter uh, because the, the time in command was just superb. And the, the team I had there, um, the, the, the PVR rate, the premature voluntary release rate, went from sort of like 10% to zero oh, over wow. the course of two years in there because it was all about the team. It, it was all about uh, making sure that they were the people that you know the spotlight that was shone on them for Mm. their achievements um i you know i will openly admit i abused my time in command to get all sorts of niceties for hms victorious um that perhaps other people wouldn't get but it was for the crew's benefit so um you know i took bruce dickinson the lead singer of iron maiden to see with me uh, for a weekend but sent him around the messes to meet all the crew he thought it was fantastic the crew thought it was fantastic. It's a winner. Yeah. Um, I'm an avid Manchester City fan. Um, when we won the Premier League for the first time, I was still on a deterrent patrol in command. Um, I got in touch with the club five days after the Aguero moment um, and said, look, missed it. You know, I'm 40 odd years old, never seen us win anything, any chance of a signed photo. Um, and they brought the trophy up to Faz Lane and got loads of photos on the submarine with it and what have you. But again, it, the, all the people on the submarine got to stand with the trophy. And then we took it up to the sports drone in the um, in the base. So everybody in the base could go and share in that as well. So it wasn't about, you know, what can John Libsy get? It was about what can victorious, you know, um, port crew get and, and benefit from. Um, so, you know, the, I, I was really blessed to have a cracking team with me and a good set of heads of departments as well who got that, what we were doing and why we were there. I, I was really keen to, again, first principle of warfare, if my senior management team don't understand the aim and objectives, then how the hell are the crew going to deliver? So I was made sure that they were always in the loop as to what I was thinking and why we were making decisions. And they just, um, you know, translated that throughout the crew. So I I think I was pretty confident in saying that if I asked anybody on board my crew, what are we doing next and why, they would know and they'd Mm. answer. Um, and that's not necessarily the case everywhere. You, you do find some more insular command teams that are all, well, we know what's going on, but we're not going to tell everyone else. Um, and I, I, don't, I, I don't like that. That's not my way of operating. Um, what you'll find in any role as a manager, as a leader, is if the team are delivering their plan for you, there's a whole lot more energy and effort goes into it than if they're delivering your plan. Mm-hmm. So all I would do was put, keep a hand on the tiller and say, right, go away and come up with a plan to deliver this um, and let me know how you're going to do it. And if it was bonkers, then, of course, I'd say, no, don't be daft. You know, change your thinking to that way. But I wouldn't tell them the answer. I knew what it was, of course. But, <laughs> and, you know, you could influence them to get to the right area. But equally, there'd be times where I think, well, it's not how I do it. But actually, if it achieves the aim, and it means that these guys are going to take some pride in what they've delivered. Well, fine, let's go with it. That's, you know, the, ultimately, you're, you're responsible if it goes wrong. But if it goes 
right. They, it's their plan that's gone right. It's not yours. Hmm. So um, th- th- there was a really good cohesion there in my team that I'd built up. And then, of course, there was the sort of hand grenade of going to Vigilant, um, which mm. I don't know if you want to come on to that at all. Yeah, now, but... let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, planning to do my third patrol with my crew in Victorious, um, I'd we'd just come back off holiday, actually, I think, uh, on the Monday. And then we had a get together with my Victorious wardroom. There were some new people had joined. Uh, we had a, a dinner in the mess which got very messy, um, if you pardon As they always do. <laughs> I, I think uh, that was on the Tuesday night. I think we finished, we left the bar at four in the morning, something like that. Um, my wife and I, uh, it was a sort of, you know, um, a partner's do. And at eight o'clock on the Wednesday morning, I got a phone call from Captain uh, Submarines, Captain Faslane uh, Flotilla, to say, I believe you had a heavy night last night, but we need to speak. Um, so can you come in and see me around midday? I'll give you time to recover and have a think about what you're doing for the next three months. And if cool. you've got anything planned for holidays, if you haven't got insurance, you, you probably need to ask yourself why. Now, even in my foggy state, I could work out where that was going. Um, it transpired that a fellow commanding officer, again, good friend of mine, um, <clears throat> his wife had been preliminarily de- diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And his boats were sailing the following Tuesday um, but the test sorry no his boat was sailing on the Friday his wife's test was the following Tuesday and in all consciousness he couldn't really go on that patrol not knowing whether he was going to have a serious issue to deal with with his wife etc so I was warned off on the Wednesday um, that um, you need to go to a brief tomorrow for this other boat about how they're going to do the patrol um don't tell anyone because we've not told them yet (laughs) and by the way you're taking it out on friday so i had uh, i I did that there was a few curious glances uh, in the submarine as they're briefing their patrol and i'm there uh, as they're wondering what the hell's lives are doing here you know um and it was only after that brief that the captain took uh, his heads of department in to say i'm not doing the patrol that's why libsty was in there um so the following morning i joined with my bag and off we went and that was with a crew that i didn't know at all Mm -hmm. now obviously from my time in submarines i knew some of the characters i knew some of the people but i'd not done a day at sea with this bunch um and (laughs) the the brief that i'd heard didn't fill me with confidence shall i say um, as to how but that was only as to how to do a deterrent patrol so worth pointing out that in the life cycle of any submarine they'll go into a refit um they'll rip everything out they'll put new stuff in after that, certainly with a deterrent um, submarine, you've then got to go and do uh, a huge training period and you've got to do a live missile firing to prove that everything works. Um, so they'd done that. They'd done very well. Lots of um, you know press and senior people on board. Um, and then they'd done their training, their pre-patrol training. Um, obviously, hugely competent operators, very good submariners, but they didn't, they'd forgotten how to do a deterrent patrol. You know, um, First, uh, first objective again: selection and maintenance of the aim. Well, so they were very here, good yeah. at, yeah, they were very good at moving a submarine around, very professionally. They, I was super impressed with all that. Um, but the mindset of, right, you're now a deterrent patrol. You're not a glory boat that's just fired a missile. You, it wasn't there. So it, it took a little bit of um, coaching in the first few days. But again, then it, that patrol became a lot longer than it was going to be. But by the end of it, we understood each other. Mm. Um, and, you know, my experience, I was, you know, quite experienced in command of a Bangor class submarine at that point. 
these guys were superbly experienced mariners and at the end of it we all got each other um so it, out of a bit of a shell shocked uh, oh right I'm, I'm going away um in two days time for another patrol of indeterminate length to coming back from that it was actually a really rewarding patrol where it was a successful patrol you know um but i think we were all better off at the end of it which was mm. yeah it was good to see yeah i wonder if you could tell us a bit about what it's actually like being at sea on patrol i mean you said you said between 60 and 100 days maybe a little bit more depending on the you know the life cycle of the other boats coming to relieve you what's it like yeah. yeah indeed so i mean you sail on patrol and you've got a rough idea of when you're due back um but because it's continuous at sea deterrence you can't come back until there's another submarine out there and has taken the baton and ready to go so you kind of have to adopt the mindset that we're going to be out here for the longest time possible and anything less than that is a bonus <laughs> um and it, it varies depending on the time of year on how busy the the situation is out there um you know wherever you go as to what you can and can't do and it's a fine balance um between you know we are there to not be counter detected and to be you know, uh, capable of launching missiles at whatever notice is required. Um, but it's not all that. There's got to be some fun in there as well. There's got to be a bit of training. There's got to be... Just, basically, you've got to feel the mood of the crew <laughs> and understand where they're at. Um, but also, none of that can ever trump the real strategic um, you know, mission that's out there. Yeah. The, the patrol there's only ever a single aim so there's one aim and there's some objectives and i can't say what they are but you know if you every single action you undertake has to be balanced and weighed up against that aim and those objectives and this is kind of what i was referring to before that if the whole crew get that if they understand that um it's easier to make those awkward decisions by which i mean so um an awful lot of people rely on uh, using the gym. So on a uh, deterrent submarine, uh, on the, the fourth deck of the missile compartment, the bit in the middle, there's a whole host of gym equipment. You, it, there's some seriously good stuff there. There's, you know, the, the, the treadmill, there's um, exercise bikes, rowing machines, Versa climbers, which was my chosen weapon of torture. Um, <laughs> there's stuff. And lots of people rely on that just to sort of vent off a bit. Now, that's all well and good, but everyone using the gym... Um, a, it creates noise, but B, it creates sweat, which means showers, which means you've got to produce lots of fresh water, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if we're in a situation where there is a threat to us being detected by something that's out there, <clears throat> you then have to really consider what you can allow people. John? Oh. I mean, it sounds stupid, but, you know. So, saying... sorry, John, I, I lost you there. Oh. It, yeah, can you hear me now? Yeah, the last one has was you really have to consider what you're allowed people to do. Yeah, so you, you have to be really conscious of what you can allow people to do that poses no risk to or increases the risk of you being counter detected. Now, someone playing a film inside a clad submarine is not going to be heard by another submarine. This is not das boat. Somebody dropping a spanner in the engine room is not going to be heard 10 miles away, but it's a mindset. So if you if there is an increased risk in order that people think and act. Oh, no. Count. But it's necessary. 
um, because you don't want to be you know, you're making fresh water is makes a noise the, the process makes a noise and it's stuff that you don't do unless you have to um stopping people watching films no one's going to hear it but it's a mindset hmm. it's making sure that people are actually we're, we're in a different period at the moment we're in a different phase and we just need to think a bit more about what we're doing and why um so it's a constant um I don't say battle, but it's a constant consideration through the sort of, you know, the, the sort of the sine wave of a patrol as to it's busy, it's intense, let's not do anything risky to it's dead quiet, there's nothing out there, we've got a bit more freedom to do a bit more and, and give people a chance to enjoy themselves, perhaps, you know, um, there's loads of training going on, there's loads of qualifications going on. I mean, as the captain, you sit on so many boards mm. of people that are trying to qualify, get the dolphins. Um, whatever <laughs> I mean I, I would sit there you know perhaps with the film on my laptop and I'm listening in if I was convinced in 10 minutes then uh, uh, you know that, that was it that was fine equally I could probably tell within 10 minutes that they haven't got a clue what they're on about here so mm. um, but there's an, the, the point being there's an awful lot of training going on on submarines the whole time you're on a patrol um, and that is a big burden on people because uh, you know if there's a certain specialist bit of kit that only two or three people operate then they're getting asked by everybody to go through it. So uh, the one thing I would say is submariners like to show off their knowledge. <laughs> so it's never usually an issue to, to go, someone to come to you and say, can you explain to me how this works? You might not be able to do it there and then, but you will do it. Mm. So yeah, there's a massive training burden. Um, there's a huge qualification burden, but there's, um, you know, there's a fun burden that you try and, you know, maximize when the situation allows. Um, but the overarching thing is, you know, the, the patrol aim and the objectives drive everything. Every mm. Literally, every course change you make, every depth change, every valve you open, it's all captured in something called the narrative. It's a lap, and This thing ends up hundreds of pages long, but you're justifying to the, your, the higher command when you get back why you did what you did and how that relates to that aim and objectives. Mm. And if it doesn't, if you're typing it and thinking, this doesn't relate, I've made the wrong decision. You have to own it. You know, th th there's no getting away from it. You, you own the fact that, all right, I did that. That was wrong in hindsight. I shouldn't, but I'm, I've learned from that and we're not going to do that again. And it's a very honest outpouring of everything you do, uh, every decision you make throughout the course of a patrol, because it's poured over at granular level by people when you get back. And the one thing that any submarine, any patrol you're on, doesn't matter what type of submarine, um, any thoughts you have get magnified by the fact you can't really speak to anyone else about them. Mm. So you don't, you, I mean, you'll speak to other people on the crew, but anything that builds up on a crew um, doesn't really have a release valve because you can't share it with someone else. So any thought that you, anything that you think, oh God, I got that wrong, I'm going to be in trouble. After seven or eight weeks of thinking that, oh my God, I'm going to get sacked. And subsequently, no one gives a monkeys about it. Mm. <laughs> Whereas other things that um, you don't really pay any attention to, well, that wasn't that significant, um, will get poured over. Why did you do that? Explain to me. You know, well, I don't know, something of nothing, wasn't it? But, but it, you know, it, it's uh, everything you do on a deterrent submarine is absolutely um, scrutinized to the nth degree, and rightly so. And, mm. and rightly so because it's it's important stuff that you're carrying but yeah of course but that must be a lot of pressure as well especially over an extended period of time yeah it is but it's you enjoy it I mean I thrived on it I loved it 
You know, every day you're bimbling around at slow speed. It sounds dull as hell. It is quite dull at times, but but it, you never stop thinking. You're never stop. You know, you you're thinking three weeks, four weeks ahead. Different classes of submarine doing crunchy stuff in places where you know it can be a bit risky. Um, it's very intense. It's very in the here and now. You know, your long your longer term planning might be the next forty eight hours for how you're physically going to move the submarine and where you want to put it. Um, it's slower, but it's further ahead. And you're, you're going through so many different permutations of so what. Everything you do, what if I do this? How could this be interpreted? How are people going to look at this in three months' time when I go back and hand the report in and read it and say, what on earth were you thinking, Libs? <laughs> you know, if you haven't very clearly stated why you've done what you've done. And you don't always get it right. But hey, you know, if you do things with the right um, intent and explain your intent, people can only say, all right but you did it but no, I understand why you did it you know yeah. it's um it, it, yeah it's interesting it's very interesting yeah. <laughs> I loved it I, I I would go back to sea tomorrow in a heartbeat in command of any submarine because it's just the most rewarding job ever I mean listening to listening and I can obviously see you our listeners can't see you but when you're when you're talking about it you've got a massive smile on your face and you're so animated <laughs> and just so happy to talk about it it's so nice to see yeah, yeah, it was. It was. I mean, you know, my wife did say to me actually that I, I developed, and I suspect it's the case with everyone, a bit of a, a sort of a god syndrome. Mm. So, because when you are away on that submarine, you are, you know, metaphorically god. You know, you you have the the yes or no answer to everything because you can't go outside. You can't ask anyone else. Um, and when you get home, it does take a little time to readjust. And just remind yourself that actually I'm not God in here, am I? This, mm. this is home <laughs> and there are children and there is the boss that is the wife and you can't swear because, you know, you, you know fine well, you know, life at sea can be a bit fruity in the language and what have you. And and again, this was pre-female um, submariners, my time in command. And um, it's, yeah, you, you have to re tune yourself to right you're not the most important person on the planet now in this household they, they just re, you know have a word with yourself Lipsy, and just think about how you act because they're very different they, mm. they are very different but yeah i mean it, it, it's would i do it again absolutely yeah i'm conscious that we're going to run out of time in a minute john but I, one thing i just wanted to ask you um to kind of finish on um your last job in the Navy was the base XO of Faz Lane, and yeah. then you went outside from there. Was that planned that you were always going to leave at 26 years, or did something happen and you decided you wanted a change? Yeah, it, it, to be honest, having I think it's quite obvious how much I enjoyed being yeah. at sea. Um, the desk jobs that were coming up did not have the same appeal, um, and I was of the mindset that if I'm going to do a desk job, and I can't go to sea now, then let's try doing it um, as a civilian. I've mm. had a hugely rewarding career. And what I don't want to do is get to the point where I start disliking being in the Navy. Mm. I'd rather go at a time where there's an opportunity. And actually, you know, quite frankly, there's enough time to have a second career mm. rather than do a job for a couple of years at the end of my time in the Navy. So, yes, it was a conscious decision. It was, you know, fueled to, you know, to a certain extent by the fact that sea time was no longer an option. Um, the age of children, you know, th there was a whole host of domestic issues that went into it as well. Um, but it was the right time to go. Um, and you know, joined Barclays. Uh, in fact, I, I did a three month uh, internship in my final three months of service um, with Barclays, 
which opened my eyes to a whole new domain, which kind of reaffirmed the decision. Yeah. Um, and it was during that time that I thought, actually, yeah, this is a, this is something new and challenging and exciting. So I, I don't regret the decision I've made. I'm not going to try and backtrack and, and scrabble back into the Navy. Mm. Yeah, so I did the same internship. You did yours in Glasgow, didn't you? And I did mine I did, in, yeah. in London. And now you work in the Manchester office. And how how do you think what you've learned, well, not what you've learned, but what you've done in the Navy and the skills and the, the leadership you have have helped you with your with your current role in resilience? Well, I think that the, the key thing is that just retaining a bit of um, sense of perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, you probably felt the same, but there's a little bit of imposter syndrome that creeps in, um, for, certainly for me. Whereas I've gone from being the absolute master of my trade. I knew everything about submarines. I taught Perisher. You know, I was the, the dog's proverbials at that. And then to come into financial services where I knew very little, frankly, um, felt unsettling at mm. first. Um, however, the the benefits uh, of experience in command and you know that re retention of perspective and focus, um, you, you just have a quick word with yourself. Like, Stop worrying about it. You know, you, you're here for a reason. You have the ability to influence people. So as much as I don't know the technicalities or the jargon, or certainly didn't when I started, the stakeholder engagements and the ability to influence and get people to understand what we're trying to achieve and why that came to the fore. And that's why I think the internship was a success, which led to initially it was work, work as a contractor in the same area on the new Glasgow campus um, it, for Barclays, which is phenomenal, by the way. Um, but then migrating to a full time employee at Barclays, it's the same skill set that you can use. And my current boss, a very sort of um, opposite line she gave me was, you just got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable mm. um, and understand that you're just not going to get everything down to the nth degree in financial services after six months. You know, the, the, most of my team that I'm with now have been with Barclays for over 20 years. Mm. They know it inside out. And I do feel, well, I should know that, you know, this should be instinctive. But of course, I started on the 30th of March, a week after lockdown. And I've not once set foot in a Barclays office. Mm. And coming from that, um, all in it together, you know, 180 people in a steel tube, very confined, very interactive environment. That's what I thought I was going to at Radbrook, where there's three and a half thousand people on site. But of course, I've never set foot in the place. So the biggest thing I miss now is people and interaction. Mm. I, I thrive off that. That that's where I think I'm probably my most effective when I'm in the the hubbub and the buzz of being in a busy environment. Um, and I sit in this home office now, and it drives me to distraction, to be honest. But but you know, I understand there is a job to do there, and I'm very grateful that I have it, and I do enjoy it. It just could be so much better, <laughs> mm. in a you know, in a non-COVID world, if we were immersed with all those people and the team as well. But one day, hopefully. Oh yeah, definitely one day soon. I mean, same. I've been working from home for nearly for nearly a year now, and I just can't wait to get back and see see everyone in the office and yeah, just feel a bit normal. <laughs> you and the rest of the world, I think. Yeah. <laughs> That's all of us. Well, I know we're out of time, John, but I just want to thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast today and for giving us such an honest and detailed download of your career. It's been fascinating, and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure, Jenna. And we could have done another three hours on that. And oh, I know. <laughs> <on>. <laughs> but 
<laughs> we could have kept going for the rest of the day, but no, but I do appreciate it. Maybe you can come back again. If you want me back, I shall be back. <laughs> Thank you so much, John. I really okay. appreciate it. My pleasure.